Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Jones! Bowden! He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. And do you know, this is our 300th episode. Simon, can you believe that? Can you believe we've still got something to talk about after 300 episodes? <laughs> There's always something to talk about in the world of cricket. We've been going for a while now, haven't we, since the, the India One Day series, which actually England played really well in. And that was the sort of the hint that they could do well in the World Cup. They did lose the series 2-1 in India way back when. But... Of course, most times in India, they got absolutely slaughtered from pillar to post and they were very competitive in that series. Anyway, that's where we started and we've been going ever since. I didn't realise it was our, our 300th. Um, so what have we got? We've got um, 400 and, no, 501 to go to beat Brian Lara's record. <laughs> I don't know when that'll take us up to, actually. About sort of 2022, maybe, or something. But uh, anyway, to celebrate that, uh, we can firstly celebrate uh, an England victory in Sri Lanka. And also, as an extra little present to you, we've got some extracts from a, an interview that Andrew Strauss gave us in the Virtual Cricket Club last week. He talks about playing 100 tests and how he perhaps uh, didn't feel that when he started out as a, as a cricketer that he'd even play for England, never mind play 100 test matches. He also talks about some uh, incidents with Shane Warne during his career and on how he built the team or helped to build the team that won the World Cup. So he's had an incredibly big influence on England. And here's just a little clip, a little sample, a little teaser in a way of the Andrew Strauss interview. Uh, he talks here about the first time he walked out to bat against Australia and what Shane Warne called him. We bowled out Australia out quite ch- cheaply and Marcus Triscothi and I went out to bat. As we were walking past Shane Warne, he went, all right, Daryl, how are you feeling today, mate? I was like, Daryl? And then the next over, he walks past from slip to slip. He goes, are you singing all right today, Daryl? And he, he kept going, Daryl, Daryl, Daryl. And I was like, I just why is he calling me Daryl? All will be revealed later. 
Okay, so more of Andrew Strauss in the second half of this programme. But first, we should just reflect on England's excellent victory in Sri Lanka in Gaul, which actually, Simon, only took them about half an hour today. So all the alarms of yesterday put to bed. Took them 35 minutes. It's amazing, isn't it, when you come back the next day. There's just not that same tension in the game, not the same adrenaline flowing through the bowlers. And, of course, the other thing as well is that England's target wasn't in any way... Uh, intimidating. They only needed a further 36 runs to win and they knocked them off without much alarm. There was one incident and that was when Dan Lawrence was struck on the pad and the ball hit him in line and was going on to hit the top of leg stump and Sri Lanka didn't review it. And the, possibly the reason they didn't review it is they'd already reviewed one against Lawrence on a reverse sweep for LBW and he got a glove on it. He might just have been umpire's call, might just have been outside the line, might have just been in line. But anyway, he got a, a little glove on it and so that was not out. And so Sri Lanka didn't review it. And the thing is, the one with the Lawrence LBW didn't review the ball turned quite a lot and often in the subcontinent when you, you know, when the ball does turn that much you think oh it's gone spin over the top or it's going to miss leg stump but they, they missed a trick there whether it made much of a difference I'm not sure it was about halfway through England's run chase this morning uh, there just wasn't that pressure and the other thing as well that, that Sri Lanka did is they set the field back so they, it was quite easy to knock singles they were fearing the boundaries of course but it wasn't you know if, to hit a boundary you had to be really bold and, t- and take it on with the ball spinning not easy but both bats were able to play calmly, use their wrists, nudge it around, use the sweep shot. And it was, in a way, it was a huge anticlimax. Not that it was for England, of course, because it, that's their fourth successive away victory after winning three in a row in South Africa. You could argue about the quality of the opponents, South Africa and Sri Lanka, but that's still some achievement to win four successive test matches away and a, and a good start to the year with uh, stiffer challenges to come, no doubt. Yeah, a good start to the year, for obviously for Joe Root, uh, really registering, putting a marker down with his double century uh, after no hundreds at all in the last calendar year. Great for a captain to start with that emphatic statement about his ability, and it was a, a brilliant innings. And I suppose the other thing, England illustrating the depth they've got with two players who obviously weren't in the test side last year, being not out at the end there and having quite an influence on the game overall. I'm thinking Dan Lawrence, who, of course, made 73 on his test debut innings in the first innings of this test. And then he stayed in and looked quite calm in this little tiny run chase. And Johnny Bairstow, uh, 47 in the first innings, batting at number three, his first test appearance since the Ashes of 2019. And, And then not out 35 in the second innings, showing all his experience, using his excellent repertoire of strokes and his bullish attitude and his sort of win mentality to see England home. Yeah, both there together at the end. Lawrence promising, uh, stayed calm, played nicely. Really memorable test match for him. I mean, great game actually for him, isn't it? To to score half century in the first innings and to be there at the end when you win in your first test match. As for Bairstow, I mean, I've always thought Bairstow is in England's best 11. Uh, you know, if he's informed, the only problem is, of course, he's not been informed for the last couple of years. I'm, I'm one of those people that thought, you know, he was, he was asked to do all sorts of different roles that, in a way, he was filling in for some of the inadequacies of others. You know, when he was keeping at number seven, that seemed to be working for him, but they wanted more from his batting. They pushed him up the order and, you know, and then they took the gloves off him and, you know, it's, it's not been easy. And of course, he was focusing on one day cricket and extremely successful at that at the top of the order. And that perhaps led, led to a technical problem that he, he opened himself up and he was getting bowled a lot. But for me, he is 
you know, in the best bats among the best batsmen in the country. He is among that sort of top six best batsmen in the country. The problem is, of course, is that you can, you know, you can have all that sort of class and whatever, but if you're not scoring the runs, you don't get in the side. But he's, he's been given an opportunity, and I mean, he hasn't taken it emphatically in this test match. He made 47 in the first innings, but he played calmly uh, yesterday and today, although, of course, there was that moment when he <laughs> was involved in that run-out with Joe Root and then nearly ran himself out the ball afterwards. So after that, he calmed down. Um, but you know, it, it it does give the, the selectors. Um, is, is that is that what they call a good problem? I don't know. I'm, I'm never quite sure whether having almost too many players vying for spots is a good problem or yeah, not. It's but... a good problem to have. But I mean, in these unexpected circumstances, it, it's quite good having these extra players around you can rely on because there are going to be players who are struggling uh, in these biosecure environments, the, the isolation sort of situations. You look at India as well, who have just lost a number of players during the tour of Australia through a combination of injuries and fatigue and so on. Obviously, Virat Kohli going back to attend the birth of his child. So many unforeseen circumstances m- means you do need a squad of players. And I think also Bairstow is someone... Perhaps he's better equipped or better suited to playing in spin conditions. I just think he does look vulnerable against good seam bowling because of the the uh, method he's adopted in white ball cricket to stay leg side of the ball and attack the bowling in the power plays against the white ball, which you can sort of get away with. It, it has left him rather exposed to the ball moving around uh, with the red ball. So perhaps less uh, suitable to playing test cricket against good seam attacks than it is uh, in, in more spin friendly environments. So you could sort of see him playing quite a big role this winter in the two tests in Sri Lanka and the four tests in India that follow. Yeah, I'm definitely. Uh, the other issue England have got probably is what do they do with Dom Sibley? Sibley doesn't look uh, that convincing against spin, but of course to improve against spin you need to play against top-class spin. But you know, can you afford to sort of be improving in the sort of test match cauldron of, especially say of a, a tour of India? So that's a, a decision for the selectors to take. The other thing as well, Yoz, I mean, you, you mentioned it. Uh, there's so much cricket for England this year. You feel there will be opportunities, not for almost everyone, but you know th- there are going to be plenty of opportunities around. This is the first of 17 stroke 18 test matches potentially for England, playing on you know, all sorts of teams, India, Sri Lanka, New Zealand, India again, Australia. There's going to be a lot of opportunity and presumably as well somewhere along the way there are going to be players you know, you know, pulling out for uh, fatigue reasons, as you say, injuries, uh, loss of form. So it is great to have a, a pool of players, and the, the two—it's funny, isn't it? Actually, the two players who, you know, in, in a way, the pressure is on because they've just come back into the side, have, have been two of England's better performers in the game. It's all—it spurs you on in a way. You know, it does make you wonder what uh, Dom Sibley be thinking this evening. You know, that—it's it's a horrible feeling as a batsman. It's a—it's a—it's a lonely place. At least you, you bowlers, you get to bowl loads of balls. If you bowl a pie, it gets hit for four. You bowl another pie, it gets hit for six. You can come back and bowl another one. If you're a batsman, you're cleaned up. You've got to wait, you know, however many days for your for your next innings, and it it preys on your mind. It's it's one of the glorious things batting when you're in form and scoring runs. You can bat all day into the next day, but if it doesn't work for you, of course, you're just sitting there waiting for, you know, waiting for your next chance. I mean, one note of optimism I'd have for Dom Sibley is that it will be difficult in this second test in Gaul. The same problems will be encountered. But once they get to India, 
I don't know whether it actually will be as difficult for somebody like Dom Sibley for two reasons. Firstly, the pitch is maybe a bit better. The first mm. test is in Chennai, so that might be spin-friendly. But it won't be as, as difficult to bat on as Gaul. And also, I don't actually think the Indian spinners will be as deadly or as difficult as these Sri Lankan spinners. I, I actually think with the, the injuries that the Indians have got to Ashwin and Jadeja, that their number one spinner at the moment playing in Australia is Washington Sunder. And to me, he's not a particularly high calibre bowler. He's, he's decent, but no one to worry about. And actually, I think Sibley will find more conventional bowlers to, to fend off in early stages of innings in India i.e. faster bowlers, which he's more comfortable against. So it may not be necessary for him to worry too much about the, the medium term in India. Well, well, we'll see on that one. Uh, he, he's got the second test match to, to cope with uh, first up. Uh, and the feeling is that the pitch might spin a, a little bit earlier in Gaul. Because the, the thing is, of course, is that they've not played back-to-back test matches like this in Gaul before. Normally, you play Gaul, you move on to somewhere else. But the, the ground staff in Gaul have got to prepare another pitch for, for three days' time. And, of course, it's been exposed. It hasn't been boiling in Gaul. I mean, if, if it had been really hot in Gaul over the last five days and you, sort of, you wonder about the surface for the for the second match but I think the anticipation is that it, it's going to start a bit drier therefore it might do what it did on the fourth day a bit earlier in the game so it's, it's going to be a test for the the batsman again the onus and, and it's going to be on the spinners to, to win the game for their side and of course as well the other, the other thing as well I mean there, there, there hasn't been a draw now in goal for 12 test matches but Sri Lanka have to win don't they to to level the series and to um, share the moose cup but uh, you, you can imagine a, a pitch that probably offers even more for the spinners a bit earlier in this next test match. It was interesting listening to Stuart Broad afterwards, actually just that sort of mindset in the England dressing room. He said, well, we wouldn't have liked to chase 130 on, on that pitch. So, you know, Sri Lanka, their efforts in the first innings really un- undid them, but they, they weren't that far away ultimately. That, you know, it was a good fight back from them. It, they ultimately weren't that far away from making it difficult for England. Those extra 70, 80 runs, uh, which they really left on the pitch in, in the first innings, cost them enormously. Um, so room for improvement for them, but they did improve in the game, and it, it sets up. I think it sets up a fascinating second test. Actually, I mean the toss will be interesting, won't it? It always is in the subcontinent. If you, if you win the toss, you feel you've got a, a decent advantage, especially in somewhere like Gaul. I think, especially in Sri Lanka. Yes, well, well done, England. Uh, well done, particularly to Joe Root, and well done to the spinners actually as well. To Jack Leach, who took five wickets in. Sri Lanka's second innings and Don Bess who took five in the first innings they're only going to get better as well which will put them all in good heart for the Indian tour to follow so well done England for getting off to a good start in 2021 and we'll be bringing you a daily podcast looking back at each day of the second test in Gaul starting on Friday Okay, well, let's hear from Andrew Strauss now, some extracts from his appearance in the Virtual Cricket Club. And by the way, the Virtual Cricket Club, if you haven't heard about it before, is a regular interview we do once a week with a leading player or leading ex-player. You can join our club by going to worldsbestcricketclub.com and joining our club costs £6 a month, but the money goes to the Professional Cricketers Association Trust, which is a charity supporting disadvantaged or uh, cricketers or cricketers who've fallen on hard times. 
And our next guest is Graham Gooch this Thursday, the 21st of January. And after that, we've got Ian Botham on, who's promised to do us some wine tasting uh, to give us a, a sample of some of the wines he's producing now. So lots of quite interesting stuff coming up in the Virtual Cricket Club. And you can join us, as I say, by going to worldsbestcricketclub.com. And here's a sample of, of Strauss's interview. Uh, first, we talked about his career and, and getting into the England side in the first place. And the interesting thing is, of course, he went on to play 100 test matches and captain England to two Ashes series victories. But he says that as a young player, the suggestion that he would have had a long and successful test career seemed a ridiculous notion. If you came to me at 19, I would have literally laughed in your face. So I didn't have a county contract. I was just, you know, I was playing for Oxford during the 19. So it, that just seemed like a million miles off. By 22, I was just getting into the Millsets first team and I was starting to bat with the likes of Rambukash and Langer and, and, and people like that. And um, I, I knew I was miles off that, but maybe I could see a pathway for me to get to, to play for England. But the, the truth is I never, I never thought I was that good, to be honest. I, I was always a bit of a grafter. And I, I found a method for myself that worked in county cricket. And I, I felt like I was quite a good learner, I suppose. So, I, you know, each season I got a bit better um, and, and kind of learnt my game and learnt how to play in different conditions and whatever. But, you know, even in that middle set side, you look at someone like O.A. Shah, he was a million times better a player than me, a better hitter of the ball mm. than I was. But he, you know, maybe he didn't, he didn't learn in quite the way I did. So it's an interesting one. I mean, I can't really make sense of it other than, you know, maybe the higher the level, the more it suited either my temperament or my technique. So did you do anything between 19 and 22? You say, you know, you're playing Oxfordshire at you know, 19 and you just got into the Middlesex side at 22. Is there anything you did in those three years? I'm thinking of young players listening to this, yeah. you know, what, and, and sort of the, the encouragement you could give a young player who thinks, oh, I'm quite good, but, you know, am I really, you know, do I have that belief, I suppose? Well, I think that the fundamental change for me was that I, I, I became part of the system. So I was, you know, I was obviously playing county, second team cricket and whatever. And what I started to do was treat it like a professional would you know up till that point I was just playing cricket for fun and you know I'd have good days and bad days and you know at Durham I was sort of seen as a bit of a comedy figure because I'd do stupid things and I'd run myself out and whatever and then um, suddenly the, the penny dropped that like if I wanted to to play professionally then I had to get myself fit I needed to really concentrate on the areas that I needed to improve in the nets and whatever and um and, and more than anything, actually, you know, I, I needed to learn off the other people I was playing with. So, you know, someone like Justin Langer, someone like Mark Ramprakash, you know, they, I was just a sponge to those guys. I was just talking to them all the time. I was watching them in the nets. I was watching them against certain bowling. And some of that sort of permeated its way through into my technique and my style as a, as a result. You know, I, I, just one point I would make, and thankfully it's different in these this day and age, but back then, county cricket was it was seen as out of place to try too hard. You know, it, it actually... Yeah, it was the amateur was era still, I suppose, in a way, almost. Yeah, it was, it was a very comfortable <laughs> environment. And if you, you know, if you were putting in the extra practice and you were getting really fit, people were like, well, what's this guy giving it? Like, who does mm. he think he is? Which is ridiculous, you know? And I think, um, thankfully, things have changed a bit. But it was that was one of the real issues with English cricket back then was... You know, everyone just wanted an easy ride. They, wanted, they, they didn't want to put themselves under pressure in terms of winning or losing games. They're happy to draw games. They're happy averaging 35 or 40 in a season. 
uh, making sure they got that next contract. And that's just so far away from what international cricket is about. Uh, that that's we, we came unstuck when we got in really high pressure situations. Thankfully, that that's all changed. Over so, what, what did you what did you manage to do to affect that conversion in yourself? Because you started out, as you said, as a student, uh, you know, a bit kind of disorganised and unfit and stuff. And uh, you saw the other county pros not really being that focused. And suddenly, ten years on maybe less, you're leading the way into a completely different attitude. So what what affected that transition for you? You know, I think Justin Langer had a massive mentoring role for me because, you know, at that time he was trying to get back in the Australian side and he was pushing himself to the absolute limits. Like, I mean, there was Justin Langer who was on one end of the spectrum. There was Mark Rambakash just a little bit slightly behind him. And I knew I had to kind of, I needed to follow them. But as I was saying, like, I was just... I was very competitive, you know, I, I, mm. I felt like I wanted to win. I wanted to get 1,500 runs a year. I, I, you know, I wanted to be the leading run scorer in the team and whatever. I, I, all that sort of stuff came into it, which, you know, I, I, when I was younger, I just never used to think like that. It just sort of developed over time. I mean, it's a fascinating revelation, actually, in a way. I've, I've never heard anyone say this before, that, you know, that no one, that, that actually there was a sort of anti-excellence um, well, my whole book's about it. My old, old lot of yard, a lot of hard yakkers, all about it. I mean, yeah. in a way, you know, I remember Mike Atherton reading it and saying it's all fiction. I said, no, it's not exactly what happened. I mean, yeah. there was the attitudes were appalling. You know, my my first, uh, the closest I ever got to play for England, right, was a, t- a trial match at uh, uh, Trent Bridge in 1981 against Sri Lanka, in fact. And I was really excited because it was a tr- test trial during the Ashes of 81. They were looking for another fast bowler to play in the Ashes of the fourth test because there was some injuries. And uh, I was really kind of keyed up for it. The night before the game, we stayed in a hotel in Birmingham called in uh, Nottingham called the Albany. And I was kept awake all night by nighttime activities with men and women, uh, including members of my team, in the next room. And then sort of graphic demonstrations about what happened in the warm-ups the following day. And that was a test trial, you know. I mean Yeah, but but that yeah, okay. That, but that was the nineteen eighties. By yeah, the time sure. Strauss was playing in the two thousands, you know, Yeah, but he started central, in the mid nineties. He started in the late nineties. Central contracts, you know, that come in, and you know, they, there was a greater professionalism yeah. around England English cricket. Well, if they were just, yeah. I mean, central contracts were just coming in then. That that was the start of them. And um, when was that? Was it ninety nine? Ninety nine, yeah. No, ninety nine. Um, it was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but but I think there was just those old prevailing attitudes, you know, still very kind of hierarchical in the dressing room in terms of the senior players running the show and. And to be honest with you, I mean, it's a much better now, but I still think county cricket lags a long way behind international cricket in terms of professionalism. You know, people still, you know, in in some counties are still going out during games and having a few beers and whatever, which in international cricket, that that isn't happened. That hasn't happened for quite a long time now. Um, Do you think that, I mean, does that, has that um, dented the fun of it? You know, people say, and you may hate this, but I mean, people say cricket's a game. You know, should a professional cricketer not look at cricket as a game? Uh, look, I, I totally agree. I think having fun, like you, you don't want it to feel like it's a, a massive chore and that there's no fulfilment in in what you're doing. And nights out at the right time, absolutely the right thing to do. But I mean, I think it's very hard to uh, to make an argument that 
going out out and getting lashed in the middle of the game is what you should be doing if you if you're being paid to do that sport like and they're asking for you to to give your best every time like that i just you know football's moved on from that culture rugby's moved on from that culture you know cricket mainly has moved on from that culture but it's still got a little way to go in some instances let's um, move the, the the story on because you brought together this team and this uh, collection of backroom staff as well or the, the, this backroom sh- collection of backroom staff would came together with you uh, to form the team that won the, the Ashes in 2011. So we're 10 years on from that. Amazing, isn't it, actually? Exactly 10 years on from that sort of famous day when you all sat around in Sydney uh, reenacting the, the experience of the campfire in Germany mm. a few months before. And can you just sort of put your finger on the key things that, that happened? I mean, I remember one thing when we did that book about you winning the Ashes in 2011, um, you, you talked about the camp in Germany, and I remember one one word you, you said, bricks, holding bricks uh, for four hours, in one in each hand. And just the kind of intensity and hardship of that camp, what were the other the blocks that, that, that built towards that, that success? Yeah, I mean, I think the camp was was a vital part of it, actually. And, uh, you know, I know they, they, they tried to sort of do it in later series and didn't work. But the, the reason we did that camp was we, we knew how tough it was going to be to win in Australia. We needed to be resilient and we needed to kind of push ourselves to see how far we could go. So, you know, those bricks, carrying those bricks around for four or five hours with, you know, no size to the bricks. So there was literally just a, like a rectangle and you had to hold on to them like that. I mean, it was horrendous. But... Um, the real gold dust was actually, uh, um, and I think I referred to it in the book, was towards the end of that, when they'd sort of beaten us down to within an inch of our lives and we were sleep deprived and, you know, just feeling awful. Um, we were sitting around a campfire and uh, Mark Borden, the, the team psychologist, started introducing a conversation around, you know, what, what share what drives you and, you know, what, 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 what you're, um, who you're playing for and all this sort of stuff. And I think just because so, everyone was so tired, for the first time ever, they started letting their, their guard down and people started talking about, you know, actually, I'm not very confident. You know, I pretend I am. I'm, I'm not very confident. I, you know, I, I worry a huge amount about my, my place in the team and whether I'm good enough to be in this team. Um, you know, I, I'm doing this for my, my family rather than myself. Now, all this sort of stuff came out that we... We'd never heard from the players before, and um, and what they what we were actually doing was being vulnerable to each other. As a result, it just brought us so much closer together, you know. And, and that particular tour, you know, that that closeness doesn't last forever. But for that particular tour, we were incredibly tight and close. We'd had this shared experience in Germany. Um, we built up the resilience, and then also, you know, I think we had a great a really good balance of teams to win in Australia and some really, I, I thought on reflection, some really good tactics that work well in Australia that perhaps people hadn't expected us to employ. What did you discover about KP on that camp then? Um, well, um, well uh, KP got uh, KP got a, a sore calf halfway through that camp. Let's just put it that way. So he went home? Uh, but he, he, you know, he... he um, yeah, he, he he found bits of it tough. So that told you something about him. Maybe 
slightly physical but also mental? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm not going to sort of drift down that rabbit hole on this one. I think I'm what, not what trying to. Did, I'm not no, trying to no, make I you go what, down a rabbit hole. Actually, I'm just trying to yeah. see if you did actually discover anything about him, really. No, I mean, look, I, I don't think I discovered anything I didn't know before, really. You know, I mean, KP, you know, any, anyone who's watched him play will know that you know he is he's an unbelievable cricketer, probably one of the best I've, I've ever played with or against. But he, he's he's focused on himself. You know, he's self focused mm. and um you know i'm sure even he would admit that so um so th those sort of things probably never really floated his boat to be honest and do you think you know looking ahead to, i mean we're jumping a bit ahead but you know england obviously will try and regain the ashes next winter is there anything from what you did that you're going to pass on or might pass on or would like to pass on to joe root about the, the structure of that plan not really and the reason I say that is, you know, I think our tactics out in Australia work really well. We, we we almost like we were very negative in the way we bowled. You know, we tried to bowl maidens and build pressure. And, you know, we thought that would play well against that sort of ultra aggressive attacking Australian style. And we had the bowlers to deliver that in Broad and Anderson and Bresnan and Tremblett and, and Swan. Um, you know, I think one of the most dangerous things you ever do in sport is fall in love with your wins you know you win doing it one way one day and therefore you think you can repeat that sport isn't like that sport is a, is dynamic in nature nothing's ever the same it always is shifting and changing and moving and so you know the, the best teams are actually the ones that are most adaptable one of the things that I always had me scratching my head in um when I was when I was playing cricket uh was those those sort of planning meetings that you'd have where you talk about it's plan A to this batsman is to bowl here and plan B is to do that. And, you know, if we bat first, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And then you get out there in the middle and actually it, it never seems to follow what you think it was going to. Everything seems slightly different. And then you sort of review it and you go, oh, we should have done X, Y, Z. And, and mm -hmm. I, the more I think about it, the more I, I like this idea of, you know, having a, a philosophy, but really challenging players to think on the spot. I think that's the only way to get consistency in, in high-level sport. Well, actually, I, I remember in that series, there was all these plans to Mike Hussey. Uh, Nathan Lehman had, and others had probably come up with these plans for where you do, where, where he was strongest and where he was weakest. And that, that he got 140 in the first test and 80 in the second or something. And when you got to Melbourne... And there was obviously plans to bowl a particular way to him. You got to Melbourne, put them in, 98 all out. And he was he was uh, second ball, Anderson, off stump, bit of movement, nick off naught. Um, kind of go back to basics. Sometimes paralysis by analysis, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't have that analysis and stuff because I think sometimes it's quite revealing. Um, mm. But I just think what we need to understand in sport, and I think actually... You know, this is just my general philosophy. I think we've gone down the wrong track in a lot of sports. You know, all this chat about one percenters and marginal gains, and you know, this highly sort of controlled environment where it's all about the coaching staff and the, and that sort of stuff. You know, that that is not my experience of high-level sport. My, my my experience of high-level sport is there's so many things out there that you can't control that you have to you have to trust the players to be able to not just trust them. You've actually got to challenge them every day to think for themselves and mm. um 
And as a result, when the pressure is really on, and I think the 20, we'll probably get to it later, but the 2019 World Cup was a great example of that. Incredible, mm. huge pressure, strange environment that no one had been in before. You know, you can't plan for that. You, you've got to have players that can think on their feet and deliver if you want to win those sort of circumstances and those sort of matches. How do you encourage players to do that? I mean, uh, you know, it sounds, it's a really interesting concept, um, you know, thinking on your feet. How do you, how does that sort of work in practice? Can you, you able to sort of give us an example of, of what you mean? I mean, certainly back, back in my day, we used to do a lot of scenario practices. So rather than just hitting, going into the nets and just hitting lots of balls, we would put players in a, you know, in a middle practice, here's a scenario, you know, we got two wickets in hand, we need 50 to win, here are the bowlers, what are you going to do? Like, so you're trying to get people to think in that way. I mean, it, it has some value. It's not a huge value. But just as an example, I think our players going to play in the IPL is a brilliant way of encouraging that. You know, so effectively they're going there as overseas players, huge pressure on them, you know, big audiences having to deliver um, in foreign situations and circumstances, you know, that that's encouraging them to think for themselves without a massive team of, you know, support staff and analysts and stuff from the England environment behind them. So, you know, I think our instinct often in sport is, you know, we need to control everything we can and therefore we need more knowledge, we need more analysis, we need more coaches, we need more backroom staff. You know, sometimes I think we're creating the problem rather than solving it actually by going down that route. So have you have you changed your mind about something like the IPL? Uh, you know, initially, did you think you know because I mean there was that time when KP wanted to go to the IPL, didn't he? I know, I know he had to play. You know, there was England were playing at the same time, so that you know that becomes an issue. Is that something you you know that you've developed in your own thinking? Actually, no, this is this is the right thing to do. I can see that now, or or is it something you th- you thought previously, but it couldn't happen? Yeah, no, I've always thought that it was a good idea for our players to to play in it, um, and. I love the idea of going out there and playing for millions of dollars. Unfortunately, no one wanted to sign me to do that. So that, that was never an option for me. But, um, but you, you know, I think uh, the, the issue back in the day with KP, and this was nothing to do with me, this was between him and the ECB, was around, you know, ultimately, were was the ECB willing for him to miss a test match mm. or a couple of test matches to play in the IPL? And that, that was a... A difficult one for the ECB to say yes to because of you know the, the the can of worms that opens. Subsequently, obviously, we've moved our summer later and later, so you know players don't have to do that uh, in the same way. And I think that's a good thing for everyone, actually. Yeah, interesting actually that he he sort of slightly changed his mind actually. I think about the IPL in the end. Initially, as England captain, partly influenced by the ECB, he was quite reluctant to allow players to take part. I think it was more of a, a an overall administrative decision rather than his personal view. But clearly, he's changed that one. Now he always had a great duel with Shane Warne on the field. In fact, it was Warne and Morney Morkel who dismissed Strauss more often than any other the bowler in test cricket he says the challenge of playing against Warren was like no other that, that was the great joy of playing Shane Warren you know and I, you know I always I mean you know you're playing one of the greatest bowlers that ever lived if not the greatest um, you know that he's got the ability to make you look completely stupid um, and you know at least part of you feels defeated before he even bowls his first ball but um, you've got to show a lot of courage against someone like that because um, because you've got to 
you've got to be have the stomach for the fight and say, look, you know, I'm I'm going to still look to score off you. You might get me out, but I've I've got to land a few punches of my own. And um, and so the, the the few times that I did manage to score runs against him and get a hundred or whatever, you know, th- those are amongst my most satisfying performances ever because must be a huge like you've done against the best. Is is he the best bowler that's ever lived? Do you think, or that in your lifetime anyway? I think the the package, you know, the, the the quality of bowling, you know, the the charisma, the showman, the you know, the the poker player, you know, I, mm. I struggle to think of a better cricketer. Let's put it that way. Certainly, you know, a bowling cricketer. Murley was obviously incredibly hard to face in his own way, but it just didn't have the intimidation factor that Warren had. What was the worst thing he ever said to you? Well, the, the, the one that you know, I, I've I've sort of sticks in my mind was that the the, the, the match before that the, the Lord Test match the first the first match of that series uh, we bowled out Australia out quite ch- cheaply and Marcus Trescothy and I went out to bat um, and you know as as we were walking past Shane Warne he went alright Daryl how are you feeling today mate I was like Daryl and then the next over he walks past from slip to slip he goes oh, are you seeing it alright today Daryl and he, he kept going Daryl 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 and I was like I just don't, why is he calling me Daryl and then <laughs> It, it suddenly twigged to me that he was referring to Daryl Cullinan, who, you know, you guys will be aware, was the South African guy that was basically, you know, never got more than 10 runs against Shane Warne. And he, he was his bunny, basically. And what Warney was sort of planting in my head was that I was going to be his bunny for the series. And that was the sort of the way that he operated. He, he was a very smart sledger. He wasn't the sort of guy that was sort of, you know, effing and blinding and whatever. There was another instance, actually, that the fourth test match in that series where we were chasing 127 to win. You know, I think he came on and got for Scotty out of his first ball and whatever. And, we, you know, the match was in the balance. And he just stopped the half, the whole game halfway through and over and went, Straussy, just want to let you know, mate, I'm getting you out this ball, OK? So this ball, I'm getting you out. You know, and he said it in front of everyone so that everyone could hear, including the umpires. And he, you know, made a massive song and dance about it. And I'm at the other end, and my initial instinct is, right, well, screw you, I'm going to slog sweep you for six here, just to throw it back at you. And then I thought, no, I can't do that. that that's what he wants me to do. I'm going to defend it. And then I'm thinking, no, what am I doing? He's got on my head here. Like, um, <laughs> you know, just something like as simple as that, mm. that went, it took me away from just watching the ball to thinking a million different thoughts. And um, that's, yeah, that was his intent. Get that ball, but... Um, but shortly afterwards, I did get out. So, um, you know, that, oh. that's where he was a genius. Actually, I miss Shane Warne playing test cricket. There was always something happening when he was bowling. I got to know him quite well, actually, by uh, firstly watching him when he was quite young, being out covering a, a series in Australia, Australia West Indies, and getting to know not only him, but his coach, Terry Jenner, as well. In fact, I bowled in the nets against the Australians before one test match in Adelaide and really watched him and Jenna working up close. Shane Warne used to come up to me during test series in the early 2000s every morning of a test and say, oh, mate, did you see the the, the slider I tried to Mark Butcher or the uh, the wrong one I bowled to Vaughan? He was such a mercurial bowler, such a clever bowler, such a brilliantly thinking bowler. There was never a dull day, basically, with Shane Warne on the field. Now, of course, Strauss also had a huge influence in England winning the World Cup by orchestrating a sort of change of mindset, really, and a total change of focus with the way England's cricket was set up. And he says that England really had no alternative. They had to change their approach or continue to be white ball flops. 
it didn't take a rocket scientist to work out that our method of playing white ball cricket couldn't be successful. You know, I, I'd been in uh, two World Cups. We'd been, you know, horrendously poor. Um, I'd seen the World Cup in 2003. I'd, I'd seen the World Cup in 2015. And we were playing a different game that, that just, you, you, it was literally impossible to win the World Cup playing that game. So, you know, I, it was very clear to me that in order to win the World Cup, you have to go and win it. You, you know, you can't hope to not lose it. And that meant you had to be able to get on the front foot, put the other team under pressure, being, be comfortable in playing that high tempo, aggressive form of cricket. And then um, I also got Nathan Lehman to do some analysis on, on uh, past World Cup winners. And there were two things. Number one, no, no team we hadn't been in the top three in the world had won it. So you had to be a very good team and believe deep down you're good enough to win it. But number two is all about batting. It's about top seven strike rate and average. So, you know, to, to really focus on the batting and, and be as proactive and as aggressive as possible seemed like a good way to, to approach it. And then, you know, I think when it came to appointing a coach, you know, I, I really didn't want it to be about the coach. You know, I, I just, I wanted it to be about the players. I wanted this idea of the players thinking for themselves. And so I wanted a coach that, uh, A, was going to be calm in the dressing room and, and a sort of supportive coach, but also be one that had a very strong uh, white ball record. And, and so Trevor Bayliss sort of ticked all those boxes. Um, you know, in some ways I was surprised by how, just how quiet he ended up being. I thought that maybe he would, over time, he would, he would, he would maybe take on a bit more, but what it allowed, you know, I always feel like leadership's like a thing that someone takes it, there's no, there's never a vacuum, right? So, you know, if, if the coach isn't playing the strong leadership position, someone else will. And in this case, it was Owen Morgan. And I think that was a really healthy environment. The captain was playing a strong leadership position that the coach was supporting him alongside the other uh, support staff. And so Owen Morgan in that World Cup final, you know, he was comfortable making decisions. He'd been doing that for four years. He, he wasn't relying on on Nathan Lehman or Trevor Bayliss or anyone else to, to, to tell him the tactics. You know, he was following his own uh, intuition and his own gut feels. Just going back, though, to the, the transformation, you know, you'd won the Ashes in Australia, which obviously was a huge highlight of your career, plus getting into number one as a test team, which, again, was a massive achievement. But what made, what flipped you into thinking the World Cup was important? Was it the fact that 2019 it was in England? Was it the fact that, you could see the sort of changes in the game happening and people were excited about white ball cricket. You know, why was it, why was it important to win a world cup? We were missing the train, like the, the, the cricketing train, the, the sort of momentum in cricket was all with white ball cricket around the world, you know, mainly mm. T20 cricket, but also 50 overs. And, you know, I, I always felt like we, we valued test cricket, because we love the, the tradition of it, but we also valued it because we were never any good at white ball cricket. And so it was like that thing that, that that's what separated us from the other teams. Um, and I, I just felt like the, the game, the way the game was moving, we had to move with the times and we had to, to set the ambition to be, to be world's best in both, both test cricket and white ball cricket. Um, whereas previously up to that point, we really didn't care about it. We cared about it at world cup time, but other than world cup time, it was a way of blooding youngsters. It was a way of seeing, you know, what our next generation of test cricketers might be like. We, we just never approached it in a strategic manner, really. It was always an afterthought. And, um, you know, I just felt we couldn't afford to do that anymore. I think that the, the World Cup being in 
England. In England was a massive driver as well because and plus plus the fact that England hadn't ever won it, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. And it's always nice to try and set set your stool out to do something um, groundbreaking and pioneering. So that that all played into it. But you know, and I think mm. actually when we when we look now with the introduction of the hundred and you know, all these domestic T20 competitions and whatnot, our players are coveted. Like, everyone wants our players to be playing, which is a brilliant place for us to be. You know, it's such a short time scale, mm. you know, that the improvement we've made in such a short time is extraordinary. It shows we always had it there. We just didn't have the right philosophy. Just remind us where you were on World Cup final day. Did you feel part of the occasion? I mean, was it a strange experience for you, having sort of brought about the change but, but not being in charge anymore? It was, you know, very bittersweet. I was there working for Sky, so I, I was definitely very much part of the occasion. I, I did, I, you know, obviously I would have loved to have been in the dressing room and, and being right amongst it. And, um, you know, I felt very close to the whole thing still. But, um, you know, obviously I'd given up that role because of uh, my wife getting ill. And, um, you know, I, there was a sense of perspective there around it as well that I sort of been driving myself to win this event but actually you know there's so many more important things in life but you know it was it was an incredible I think in my mind's eye when I when I imagined this starting this this that project you know I had this vision in my mind of a, a full house at Lords, England in the final the World Cup there you know the, the buzzer in the, in the ground and all that sort of stuff so just to actually see it transpire was was extraordinary uh it was the great probably the greatest game of 50 over cricket of all time you know and we won it like the, the truth is if we hadn't won it we would have been glorious failures wouldn't we um and so those margins are so small in sport and obviously just delighted that it all went the way it did in the end well of course it was an amazing day that uh, world cup win and actually i remember uh, seeing in fact simon and i were doing the the post world cup final podcast sat underneath the media center at lords at about eight o'clock at night probably later actually more like nine o'clock at night uh, and just saw the sight of Strauss and his two sons walking back from the skybox across the Lord's ground uh, to the pavilion to perhaps just join the team and give them a congratulatory handshake or two. But it was a slightly odd sight, actually, and I wonder how much he felt slightly distanced from the whole scenario, having bowed out of his job as director of cricket uh, in England and, and sort of taken a back seat following the, the tragic death of his wife. And so he was more of a detached presence in a way, but still must have been incredibly proud seeing what had been achieved by something which he, in a way, initiated. OK, well, I hope you've enjoyed that. And certainly it was fantastic to have Andrew Strauss in the Virtual Cricket Club. As I say, we have Graham Gooch as our guest this Thursday. And you can join us at worldsbestcricketclub.com. There's also a chance to win sign memorabilia as well if you join our club. Graham Gooch will be on at 7pm on Thursday the 21st of January. Hope you can join us for that and also for the podcast looking back at each day of the second test from Gaul. Thanks very much for listening and thanks for supporting us through 300 episodes. Let's hope we can do another 300. Podcast Network.